Father, we come to your word for that same reason. Because we trust you, we come to your word because we want to hear you speak to us. We know that the words that, that come from the Bible, the words that come from your word, are truly the words of life that, that guide us in this life, that truly restore our souls. And so, Father, as we come to your word now, we pray that, that you would speak to us clearly and powerfully this morning, that that your words would restore our souls, that your words would guide us on the path of righteousness, and that you would be praised and glorified through all of it. And so we just pray that, that anything going on in our hearts and in our minds, anything that would distract us from hearing what you have to say, that you would just push it off to the side um, so that we could hear you speak clearly this morning. Father, we ask that you would open our ears to hear, our eyes to see, and our hearts to receive what you have to say to us this morning. And all God's people said, amen. If you have your Bibles with you, you can open to John chapter 4. We're looking at verses 1 through 26. Um, And if you don't have your Bibles with you, the, the words will be up on the screen. And this morning we're looking at a pretty familiar, well-known story from the Bible. It's kind of one of, uh, one of the favorites out there. John 4, verses 1 through 26. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So Jesus left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you've just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain 
nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the Spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. You know, we we all recognize that that we live in a world that is kind of constantly changing. Uh, The world is constantly in flux, and often we can encounter dangerous or difficult things, right? And we just got that from this last time in prayer, right? All of a sudden, it's like there are things that can happen that we would never expect would happen. They kind of come out of nowhere. We don't know what is happening next. And because of that, we find ourselves kind of always on the lookout for things that are going to give us stability and comfort and hope, right? When, when things are changing all the time, we're looking for things that are going to give us some level of stability, right? Or when, when we're in pain and, and difficulty, we're, we're seeking things that are going to provide us with comfort. Or when we're in despair and sadness, we're looking for things that are going to give us But the problem is, we often look for those things in all the wrong places. Uh, There's there's this tendency in us to look to try to find stability and comfort and hope in things that we can see and things that we can touch. Like that's just kind of our we kind of start to naturally gravitate those things, and so uh, you know many people try to find stability, comfort, and hope in just finding a good job. If I just have a good, stable job, I can go to my work every day, I can bring home a paycheck, I can provide for my family, then, then everything is good. I've got my stability, comfort, and hope in my job, right? Or, or other people will find it in their families. They'll say, like, as long as I raise my kids and they turn out pretty good, and, like, I've got stability, comfort, and hope, right? As long as, or, or you can look back and you can be like, my parents and my grandparents and my great-grandparents, like they raised good kid after good kid, so I have hope and comfort that I can maybe raise a good kid. Um, some people look for this kind of stability, comfort, hope in just a church family. Like if I could just find a good church community to be a part of, I'll have stability, I'll have comfort, I'll have hope, and things will be just fine. Um, until it isn't. Um, because the problem is, is when we try to find stability, comfort, and hope in, in things that we can see and things that we can touch, those are all things that fade away and fade away quickly. And as soon as they fade away, so does our stability, comfort, and hope. And so you start looking for those things in a job, and then out of the blue, the economy tanks, and you lose your stable job, and right along with the job goes stability, comfort, hope. Um, you, you put stability, comfort, and hope in, in your family, and all of a sudden a kid out of nowhere starts wandering down a path that you didn't, never thought your kids would wander, and what happens? Stability, comfort, and hope wander down the path with them. 
or you put stability, comfort, and hope in a church community, and then, you know, we're not perfect people, and so tension starts rising in the church sometimes, and there are church fights, and right along with all of the, that goes the stability, comfort, and hope. Um, and it's going to happen any time we try to put our comfort and hope in things that we can see and touch, because those things are all fading away. They all disappear. They will always let you down, and they'll always leave you longing for something more. Which is a reminder that when we're, when we're looking for comfort and stability and hope, we have to look higher. We have to look beyond the things that we can see and touch. We have to look to things that are eternal, unshakable, foundational things like our God. And we realize that those are the things we can put our hope and comfort and stability in because they never change and they never fade. And that's really, I think, what this passage is about. I think it gets preached on in a lot of different ways, but I think at the core of this story, this interaction between Jesus and the woman at the well, that's the point that's trying to be made. And and the story kind of gets set up at the beginning. Jesus you know, Jesus learned that the Pharisees heard that he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus wasn't doing the baptizing. We talked about that. So he left Judea, departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to this town in Samaria called Sychar, near a field where Jacob had given his son, and Jacob's well was there. And I know this was kind of a while ago. It was before Thanksgiving, which seems like an eternity ago, um, when we last preached on the end of John. But remember that, that chapter 3, the last sermon I preached, was about this, this interaction between John and his disciples, John the Baptist. And his disciples were worried. They're like, John, like all of our disciples are leaving and they're going after Jesus. And John says, don't worry about it. But, but the Pharisees saw the same thing happening. They saw all these people leaving John the Baptist and going to Jesus, and they saw crowds of people flocking to Jesus, and the Pharisees felt very threatened by that. And so Jesus knows that the Pharisees are feeling threatened by this, and so he gets out of Dodge, and he leaves Judea and heads for Galilee. And I'm gonna, I think most likely he does that because he knew the Pharisees were going to try to kill him. And it wasn't his time yet. And so you're going to see this throughout the Gospel of John. You'll see the hour is coming. The hour has not come. You're going to see this over and over. Um, and then eventually when it comes to Jesus' death, he says, the hour is here. It has come. And so Jesus is like, it's not my time for the Pharisees to kill me. So he, he leaves Judea and heads to Galilee, and part of that trip means you go through Samaria. And, you know, I've heard other sermons preached over the years where they've said, like, Jews hated the Samaritans so much that they would, like, bypass Samaria. They just wouldn't travel on their roads. And, uh, you know, after studying that this week, I don't actually think that's true. People are people, and they're like, I'm going to take the shortest route. So it was actually fairly typical for the Jews to travel through Samaria they just really didn't stop. They just kind of were just getting through here as quickly as we can, getting to the road. So that's why Jesus took this path from Judea through Samaria to Galilee, because that was the shortest route. And along the way, he encounters this well. Jacob's well was in Samaria. 
And so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour, or which means about noon. Um, and so they're on this long journey through an arid part of the world in the middle of the day, and what happens to Jesus? He's tired. He's thirsty. And I think he's also hungry. That's why eventually you see that the disciples take off to go find some food in the nearest town. And so he needs a break. And, uh, I, you know, I don't want to take too much on this point, but I just, I always want to take an opportunity to point out, like, part of the reason this is in this passage is to remind us that Jesus was truly human. Like, I, I think we can have this tendency, like, Jesus is truly God, and Jesus is truly human at the same time, but we kind of contend, well, you could fall off one side or the other, really, but there's a tendency sometimes to think, well, Jesus was truly God, and so he just kind of, like, floated around like above everyone else and missed the point that Jesus had been walking on a dirty, dusty road for a really long time, and he was exhausted. He was wore out. He was tired. He was thirsty, and he was hungry. It's because he's a man, just like the rest of us. He was a human. And so as he's, and what I think helps tie this in, so he's sitting beside the well, tired, thirsty, hungry, his disciples go to get him some food, um, the, this woman comes to draw water. And because Jesus' disciples had left, Jesus had nothing to get water out of the well. And so he asked the woman. Actually, he tells her, give me some water. Um, and here's her response. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritan. And I think, you know, as, as I've heard this um, relationship between the Jews and the Samaritans described over the years, um, it, it's almost been described like it was a one-way thing. Like, the Jews just really hated the Samaritans, but the Samaritans didn't reciprocate that. And the reality is, Samaritans didn't like the Jews either. Like, it was a kind of a two-way animosity going between these two groups of people. And so I think this isn't, it's hard to know. You have to kind of read into tone. I could be wrong. Um, but, but sometimes people have read this passage where she was like, wow, I'm so honored that, that you, a Jew, would speak to me. That, that makes me feel special. I think she's kind of showing some animosity, be like, who do you think you are, Jew? <laughs> like, get your own water. Which... Because these tensions, like, you know we, know, we see all these tensions in the Middle East right now, right? And we know that they've gone back hundreds and hundreds of years or more, thousands of years. It's kind of the same thing between the Jews and the Samaritans. And uh, you can read a little bit about some of that tension. I'm not going to get into it this morning, but if you go to the book of Ezra, chapter 4, you're going to see where some of this tension comes in. Like God's people had just been out of exile and they were going back to Jerusalem to build the temple. And the Samaritans didn't want them to build the temple in Jerusalem. And so the Samaritans do this political end around and tell the king, like, these are really bad people. Don't let them build the temple. And the king shuts the temple building project down in Jerusalem. And then eventually God yells at the people for shutting down the building program. But so that's like, this is going back like 600 years before Jesus meets the woman at the well. There's that kind of a tension. And then 
On top of that, the, the Samaritans only held to the first five books of the Old Testament called the Torah or the books of Moses, you know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Nothing else they would hold to. And so when you only hold to just part of God's word, it, it changes the way you understand God and it changes the way that, that you worship him. And so the, the Samaritans had a very different idea of what it was like to worship God. And uh, not trying to be super controversial, but I think it's kind of a similar tension that we feel today when we talk about like, uh, like Mormons and Muslims, right? Like they'll say like, well, of course we worship the same God as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We worship the God of them. We worship the same God as you. And then we look at the ways that they talk about God and we say, it actually doesn't seem like you're talking about the same God, right? You've kind of grabbed this and you've kind of taken it a different direction than what the rest of God's word has said. And so there's this kind of tension between the Jews and the Samaritans, where the Samaritans are like, well, we worship the same God, and the Jews are like, you don't. And so there's this kind of tension here, and it goes both ways between the two, um, which is why I think Jesus' answer is so great, <laughs> because actually Jesus doesn't buy into all of this tension. He just talks to her. So she kind of responds to him with some animosity, and he comes back and says, well, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Um, and, and what he's saying is, like the gift of God that I'm speaking of is me. And if you knew who was talking to you, you would, well, here's, here's a better explanation. Herman Ritterboss, he says, if she knew the gift of God and in that connection who the stranger was, who Jesus was, she would no longer trouble herself about all the problems between Jews and Samaritans, but would have asked him for water and he would give it to her, living, running water, no matter whether she was a Samaritan or not, right? And I think Jesus just kind of cuts through all of the tensions between Jews and Samaritans, like, stop worrying about all that. <laughs> There's something more here. I have living water before you and you need to kind of move beyond the tensions between Jews and Samaritans, and see things for what they truly are. I have something bigger and better for you. I have living water. And, and her response says a lot more than, than I ever really realized until this week. She says, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Um, I think the first part is sarcasm. <laughs> um, but that middle line, I think, tells us a lot. That line where she says, are you greater than our father Jacob? It's kind of like, who do you think you are? Like, our father Jacob dug this well a long time ago. And he drank from this well himself, and this well has, has given water to generation after generation after generation. It's, it's gave water to our livestock that have fed us. Like, this well has been providing for us for years. Who do you think you are? And, and there's this sense where, like, where is she finding stability and comfort and hope? In this well and in Jacob. And so she kind of says, who do you think? Do you think you're better than Jacob? And Jesus basically says, yep. 
<laughs> um, and then he explains it. He says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And Jesus' point is that this well has been good, but you have to keep coming back over and over and over and over again to be quenched, to be satisfied, and this is a temporal thing that will pass away. Wells can dry up, and they never last forever. He's saying, I have something for you. That's much beyond the things that you can see and touch that will bring stability and comfort and hope beyond this. Well, I have living water for you. And not only will it quench your thirst, like your deepest thirsts, but it will turn into a fountain that will overflow within you. And actually, a fountain that overflows and then quenches the thirsts of others. And it will give you ultimate satisfaction, ultimate stability, ultimate hope, ultimate comfort, an ultimate life, which is eternal life. And he's getting at this problem that God's people have always struggled with. We still struggle with it today, but God's people have always struggled with it. And I came across a passage that I think, I don't know if Jesus is referencing this passage, but it's really, really closely connected to what we're looking at. Um, Because it's the prophet Jeremiah, and he's rebuking God's people right before the exile, saying, this is why you're about to be sent off to exile. And in particular, which I think is interesting, Jeremiah is rebuking specifically the people of Jacob who dug the well. And here's what he says. He says, be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. The first one, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And two, They hewed out cisterns or wells for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. That's the two evils that God's people have committed. Um, There's a fountain of living water over here, and they go, nope, (laughs) and I'm going to dig my own. And they dig and they dig and they dig and they try to quench their thirst. They try to be satisfied on their own. And they dig well after well after well after well. And there's no water in it because they're broken. And the water's right there. (laughs) And they're like, not having it. I'm digging my own. I'm putting my hope and my comfort and my stability in here. And I'm just going to keep digging and working and working and working because I'm not drinking that water, right? It's like a spoiled little kid. <laughs> not drinking them, drink my water. That's how we are. And, and God said, those are the two evils that they committed. You refuse that, but try to dig your own. And it's really, I think, the point that, that God is trying to make with this woman at the well, saying, you know, you've put all of your comfort and hope in Jacob, but not in Jacob's God. You've put all of your comfort and hope in the the water that comes from this well, this well that has provided for you and your family for generations. You put all your comfort and hope in that, but not in the fountain of living water who is your God. Um, You know, you, you put it here and this will never satisfy you. Um, 
you just keep trying to dig your own wells over and over when you turn, turn your back on the fountain of living water. This is Jesus' response to her saying, Jesus, give me the water. And his response is, go call your husband and, and come here. Now, why did he do that? Because I don't think Jesus was unaware that this is how this, well, obviously he's, he's aware of how this is going to play out because the woman says, uh, I have no husband. And Jesus says, you're right in saying, I have no husband. You've had five husbands. And the one you're with now is not your husband. What you've said is true. And she says, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. <laughs> like, uh-oh, you know, right? All, all of that kind of murky, miry past and present just kind of gets brought up to the surface in that light. And we don't really know, to be honest, we don't know why she had five husbands, right? They could have died. There could have been a bunch that died, and she got remarried for that. But we know that right now, Jesus says, right now you're with a guy who's not your husband. Right now you're committing adultery. And so you can probably take a good assumption that the other five marriages were ended because of adultery. Don't know that for sure, but I think it's a pretty good assumption. Um, And Jesus is calling out, you've had this history of seeking man after man after man after man. You keep digging your own wells, trying to be satisfied by them, and you're doing it again right now. And she doesn't argue with him, does she? She goes, you must be a prophet because you just, you nailed it. You've got it right. That's what has happened. That's where I am. Um, and so then you start wondering, why? Why is Jesus bringing all this up now? Um, why is this his response when she says, Jesus, give me that living water? Why is he bringing up all of this? Um, there's another passage in Isaiah 55 that I think is super helpful. It, it starts off, it says, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Right? Who has no money, come buy and eat, right? That sounds like what Jesus is telling her, right? Like, you're thirsty, you're longing, you want to be satisfied, so come. Come, drink. I've got living water for you. But then Isaiah 55, as it kind of keeps going on, it shows you, here's how you drink the living water. Here's how you receive that. It says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near and let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. And Isaiah 55 is teaching us, that's how you drink the water. That's how you eat the bread. That's how you have your deepest longings fulfilled. You turn, I'll keep the living water over, you turn from your trying to dig your own well, you turn from your wicked ways and you grab hold of the God who's right here. Um, And what Jesus is doing for her is he's saying, you've got this history and you're doing it now too. If you want to drink the water, turn from it. Turn from it right now. Turn from your sin, turn from your wickedness, and embrace the fountain of living waters. That's how you drink. And 
you know, the rest of the interaction gets kind of interesting. And, and for a lot of years, um, I had thought and I had taught, like, she gets uncomfortable and changes the subject because she's like, you know, a lot of, I've heard a lot of pastors say, like, she's like, don't want to talk about that anymore. Let's talk about worship that we're going to fight about. So let's change the subject. But, but I actually don't think she's changing the subject. I think she's in. And she knows what Jesus is doing. She's, she's picking up that Jesus is calling her to kind of turn from this sinful lifestyle. And she's saying, now, now what does that look like? What does it look like for me to, for, to turn from this and to drink the living water? And so she says, okay, Jesus, our, our fathers, they worshiped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem, that's the place where people ought to worship. Like, we have disagreement here. Like, if I'm gonna, if I'm gonna turn from my sin and I'm gonna embrace the God who's seeking me and worship him, how do I do that? Like, where do I go to worship? And Jesus answers her question kind of the same way he answers the interaction with the well. He says, you know, it's not about the well. It's not about the mountain. He says, woman, believe me, the hour's coming when neither on this mountain in Samaria, neither on the mountain in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. It's not about the mountain anymore. It's not about the things that we can see and the things that we can touch. There's something deeper going on. And he explains himself. He says, because our God is a God, he is spirit. You can't see him. You can't touch him. And so those who worship him then have to worship him in spirit and in truth. That's the only way you can truly worship God, is in spirit and truth. It's not about the mountain. It's not about the church building. It's not even about like finding holy places throughout the world. It's about worshiping him in spirit and in truth. And he says to her, he says, the hour is coming and it's now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Not about the mountain. It's not about where. It's about spirit and truth. And, and what I really love about the way he ends that is that the Father is seeking people to worship him like this, and I think there's a little bit like you <laughs> to the woman right there. The Father's seeking people like you. Even though you're a Samaritan, even though you've kind of have this messed up history, even though you have no idea how to worship God rightly, the Father's coming for you. And he wants you to worship him. He wants you to, to stop trying to look for satisfaction in all these things, to grab hold of the fountain of living waters, to be cleansed and healed and renewed, and then to worship him in spirit, and in truth. And he's calling her to that. And that's how she receives the living waters that all of this started. It doesn't matter the past or the history. It doesn't matter how far off you've been. You know, it doesn't matter if you don't understand what it looks like to worship. He's like, you, you look to me, and then I will open a way for you to worship me in spirit and in truth. And, and I love this last part. I always thought this was kind of, I mean, just Jesus revealing himself as the Messiah, but there's even more because she says, okay, I know Messiah's coming, and I have this feeling in the back of her head she's going, he's coming. Are, are you the guy? Um, he's called the Christ. When he comes, he will teach us. He'll tell us all things. And Jesus says to her, I will speak to you and he. Like, like, I'm the guy. 
I'm the one that you've been longing for. And, and one of the cool things I found out this week is, on the one hand, in here you can see that the Samaritans understood that when the Messiah come, he was going to come be a teacher, right? He was going to teach them, correct them. He was going to show them how to rightly worship. And so they were expecting someone who's going to do that. But they also had this idea that the Messiah was going to come, and he was going to come with buckets of water to satisfy the people. And I think Jesus is saying to her, yeah, I'm the guy you've been waiting for, and it's way better than you expected. <laughs> like, you, you were excited about a Messiah coming with buckets of water? Like, I got more than buckets of water. I, I've got even more than a fountain of living water. I am the fountain of living water that will continue to satisfy you and will overflow within you. I'm the guy, and I'm better than what you expected. And you expected the, the, the Messiah to come and to teach you how to worship rightly? Well, I'm going to do that, but I'm going to actually open a way so that you can worship God rightly. Not on this mountain, not on that mountain, not based on your past, your present, but through me, you can worship me. And it's Jesus saying, I'm the true temple. Not about the temple in Jerusalem, not about the temple on Mount Gerizim in Samaria. It's about me. If you come to me, I'll open a way and you can worship God in spirit and in truth. And he's saying, put your hope in me because I'm eternal and unshakable. And I'm way better than all these other things. And if you grab hold of him, he'll cleanse you, he'll renew you, he'll forgive you, he'll satisfy you, and he'll open this way for you to worship him in spirit and truth. That's where you put your hope. And, and that's really, I think, the overarching message uh, for each one of us this morning is stop putting your hope in all the things that we can see and touch because they will let you down. It's, it's really the same message. What I love about John is chapter three is all about Nicodemus, the religious leader, grew up in the church his whole life, and Jesus looks at Nicodemus and he says, stop putting your hope and trust in all the wrong places. Trust in me. And then the next chapter, Jesus meets a woman who's committed adultery after adultery after adultery. Her whole life is a mess, and he looks at her, and he says the same thing to her that he says to Nicodemus. Stop putting your hope and trust in all the wrong places. Look to me. I'll cleanse you. I'll restore you. I'll redeem you. And, and it's a reminder for us that, like, we do this all the time. All of us do. We have to repeatedly, like, turn from trying to dig our own wells and turn to, to our God. And, and it's a reminder, like, if you try to put your hope and trust in your job and not in God, you will be let down. You try to put your hope and trust in your family and not in God, you will be let down. If you try to put your hope and trust in this church, you will be let down because they all fade away. Um, we have to put our hope and trust in the God who gives us this church, the God who gives us our family, and the God who gives us our job. And so it's a calling for us to stop trying to like dig our own wells, stop trying to find satisfaction in these things, repent of that sinfulness, and grab hold of the God who's standing right there saying, come, drink, I'll cleanse you, I'll restore you, I'll renew you, I will satisfy you. And 
I'll open up a way so you can worship me truly in spirit and in truth. Let's come to God in prayer. Father, we come into your presence so thankful for who you are and what you've done. Father, we're thankful for you just your, your goodness and your kindness and your patience and your mercy with us, Lord, because we come to you now and, and we just admit that we are often trying to dig our own wells. We're trying to create our own things of worship and all of these things. We're trying to do it all ourselves and we're making a mess out of it and we're not actually being satisfied by it and we've got our back turned on you. And so, Father, we begin by saying, sorry. We just confess to you that we've turned our backs on you and tried to go our own way, and we ask that you would just forgive us and cleanse us, and you would pardon us like you promised. And Father, we're thankful for the hope that we know that you will do that when we turn to you, that you will cleanse us and forgive us. And Father, we pray that you would do more than just cleanse us, but that your spirit would now begin to work in our hearts and so that we would continue to look to you more for our hope and for our satisfaction and for our fulfillment. Stop looking to the things of this world that, that we would continually live as if you were our true hope and comfort in this world. And we pray that, that you would do that in our lives, but that also people around us would be able to see um, that you're our hope, and you're an unshakable hope that satisfies all of our deepest longings. We pray that you would receive all the glory, and the honor, and the praise. And all God's people said, amen.